And welcome to the Future of Gaming podcast. Two weeks ago, you saw Devin, David, Tim, and myself um, have a deep discussion about one of the big or a few of the big problems with AI and what Web3 or how Web3 could solve them. Today, we have three people of that squad. Tim is MIA. We don't know where he is. Tim, we hope you're good. Um, we have Devin Becker, gaming lead at NAMI, and David Benham, who's the co founder and CEO at Ready Games. Myself, Nico, I, um, I'm one of the co-founders of the FogDAO and also an investor at Bitcraft. So we had a deep discussion. Let me try and bring you up to speed. I would highly recommend listening or watching that discussion first. I think that's going to give you a lot of context on why this is important. But the, the TLDR is that there's currently a dominance of the big three in AI. Um, we have OpenAI, we have Google, and who's, this who's the third one? Meta, certainly. And, okay, and we have Meta. Um, and the problem is that if the data gets cent too centralized and we let AI take over uh, a lot of stuff in our, li in our lives, a lot could go wrong. And so um, AI and the AI large language models need to be more decentralized. Another observation we made was that AI agents are start to be autonomous decision makers. And so if the AI that they're based upon is too centralized, we could see some very adverse effects. You can imagine that Google is going to, um, you know, when you let AI agents make holiday reservations for you, Google might have, you know, people pay to have those AI agents choose those specific um, accommodation providers, for example, um, and you can see the rabbit hole where that leads to. The second problem we saw with the rise of AI is the emergence of deep fakes and fake content. Um, I feel like that is, like we've been talking about that for a while, but I have not yet seen like a huge trauma, drama around deep fakes. But I guess that's just, it's just like something waiting to happen. And, and perhaps the next presidential race or something might, might see a, a global drama around that. Um, but um, I think, you know, what we concluded was that using cryptographic signatures that can verify authenticity of content um, would be a great solution to solve the, the potential defake problem. And in addition, as we know, AI gets trained on data. Data exists on the internet. And we actually, as humans that operate and live a lot of our lives on the internet, contribute to the, to the data that those AIs get trained on. Um, using signatures, we can actually do attribution. Oh, you wrote, I think, Devin, you might be the one that has written most words around the intersection of Web3 and games. And so whenever an AI tries to be smart around that, that's partially because or thanks because of you or thanks to you. Um, and so, an, an, you know, using Web3 technologies, we could potentially do some attribution there um, and make sure that, you know, the, the creators and the, and the contributors actually own part of the network and it doesn't become super centralized. So... That's how I would summarize it. Did I miss anything super important, David Devin? Well, I think I think some other pieces that uh, we should probably touch on today is you know what role does gaming play in maybe solving some of these issues, which I think would be very interesting to explore. There's also been some really big news, um, primarily the WorldCoin event, which uh, many of you hearing me say WorldCoin might scratch your heads and say, "What is he saying?" A new uh, coin. We'll get it. A new coin. What? It's the world's coin. I thought we had Bitcoin for that. Um, yeah. The answer is no. There's another coin, <laughs> but it is kind of important. We'll talk about it because it's directly trying to resolve actually a lot of the questions we raised um, two weeks ago. So I guess that makes us all feel pretty smart that we were talking about this, anticipating this big event. So I think we should look into that. Um, and then I'll just mention one thing about these big three, which were alluded to, I think, Nico at the opening here. Uh, you know, the pitfall here with AI is think of the big three as app stores, ultimately, that effectively their methods to run an AI is sort of like Google or Apple running an app store, which means what exactly? They have, these big three have terms of service. They have criteria to use their large language models. And essentially, you're creating an application on their layer. And do we need another 
monolithic app store, totally centralized to de facto control the way we use AI. That is actually where we're heading right now. Um, they don't really ever say, oh, we're app stores, because they know if they did, that would just be like pretty bad marketing. Um, since app stores are just about one of the less favorite things in the tech community right now. Uh, but having said all of that, think of these big three as, as sort of silent app stores that are going to essentially get to decide who does what and why. And um, if we believe AI will be ubiquitous and powering, some people predict $7 trillion worth of economic you know, GDP globally within the next year or two, it's super uncool, to put it mildly, that we're going to be chaining all of that to, what, three companies and their market caps. So just think of these large language models as app stores and everything you build on them is, uh-oh, <laughs> congratulations, you're in another walled garden app store. Well, ChatGPT actually has basically the app store right through the plugins, so we're kind of already exactly. there. We're kind of there. But it's interesting people haven't put that together yet and been like, oh, my God, we're just recreating another App Store experience from 20 years ago. <laughs> it happens. We've been to this rodeo so many times, people. Um, so all of you building on ChatGPT, you're essentially enhancing the App Store power of OpenAI is what you're doing. Um, I, really, I really like that comparison, David. Um, I've, I'm working or I'm reading through the book Metaverse um, and how it will change everything, what it is and how it will change everything. And it's, um, it's a really good book, but... The like fundamental problem with however we envision the metaverse is going to be the app stores and the 30% fee that they currently charge, which makes a lot of emergent business models hard to do, you know, profitably. Um, and so I really like that comparison. Yeah. So should we dive into the implications of this WorldCoin announcement yes. and how that relates to everything? Um, so... For those of you who don't know anything about WorldCoin, it's basically a project coming out of Sam Altman. He's, uh, you know, been thinking a lot and building a lot in the tech space for many, many years. And it's not that WorldCoin is a new idea per se, but the announcement was that they're really ready to start on-ramping people. What this is is a method to create a verify, supposedly a verifiable personhood on the call it the internet, um, using cryptographic techniques. So essentially, what does that mean? It means they have these um, pieces of hardware called orbs. And what they do is you make an appointment to go to the orb and you have your iris scanned and everyone's iris is unique. And based on that unique iris scan, it starts to instantiate your personhood identity. And then from there, that becomes a kind of... Uh, there's you know public and private keys that are issued around it, and with your public and private key cryptography, you can start to sign and do transactions and be verifiably you. That that would be like the ultra short version explanation of what it's doing. Um, there's lots of questions about sort of is it doing it the best way? But before we talk about that, I would just say what it is trying to solve is the thing we were talking about in the last episode, which is hey. Uh, there's a need, especially with the rise of AI, to be able to validate whether content comes from a person, if so, which person, or an AI, possibly even which AI, if it's from an AI. And uh, explicitly, the WorldCoin announcement was very tied into that. Like, they made a point of urgency that the rise of AI methods is a justification for, like, accelerating the rollout. Like, there's even more need for it, which I think, in theory, we would all maybe agree with on this podcast, because we were basically saying that last time. Uh, so... The WorldCoin um, announcement is uh, really tied into that. I think if there's some, there's many layers of critique uh, that one could get into with this, and I'm going to be mindful about rabbit holes and not going too far in. Uh, obviously, when I when you heard me describe this, the first thing you'll probably think of is going to see the orb. Like that just sounds like some kind of physical labor. Like I have to go somewhere and do this. Uh, and yes, that's a meaningful reality. So I think their goal is to get two billion people ultimately like scanned and onboarded, that does feel um, ambitious in a way that may, may we could all scratch our heads and say, well, isn't that kind of unrealistic? Crazy stuff has happened in this world, who am I to say? But it just offhand, it does sound like a bit of a lift. Um, they cite precedents, like in India, they've had methods for doing this type of scanning for Indian government IDs, which has been very successful in giving services. So it is feasible, but then you're dealing with a highly centralized uh, kind of entity, in this case, a government doing it. Uh, and one of the pitfalls here is if it's highly centralized, it means there's all kinds of points of vulnerability where if you can get into the central, I guess, authority that's doing this, potentially you could have a really unfortunate takeover of all these identities. And if, in fact, that many people have signed up, you can imagine what a mess 
that would be, it would have really meaningful, horrific, like, implications. So that's the rabbit hole we start drifting towards, which is how do you, you know, decentralize this thing? Is it too centralized? Uh, but at the core of it, they're trying to solve that problem. Um, now, the alternative to this is what we talked about um, on our last episode, which is more basing your identity by inference on your existing social graph and essentially identities vouching for identities. The critique around that is it's a bit um, potentially elitist or in some way, when we say elitist, it's such an elastic word because it's not, it's elitist over the, the graph of the human, like entire global population. It does mean people that for whatever reason have had more access to computers early in life, did develop a social graph sooner rather than later. Yes, they're going to have more breadcrumbs. Yes, it'll be easier probably to instantiate some, verify or infer some identity that's provable from that with, with a fair high level of confidence. However, you know, many, many people do not have that experience, especially in developing economies, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a critique of that method. On the other hand, the appeal of that method is it is, um, well, you don't have to go to an orb, right? So that just seems for a lot of, <laughs> a lot of people probably be better than a, than a date with the orb. Um, so that would be the, 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 the prime alternative. Uh, I think most importantly is just to note that this is happening. I mean, I think this is being elevated now to a major discussion um, how do we do this per proof of personhood in, in light of the rise of AI? Uh, and I do believe that um, there's sort of an irony here, right? There are these huge monolithic visionary ideas like WorldCoin, which do feel kind of in contrast to a lot of how technology is developed, which is more iteratively and organically through a process. Uh, so that then brings us a little bit to the question of gaming and, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of in other environments that may help us develop these new standards and methods to identify personhood that are maybe lower stakes than something as high stake as your actual legal identity on day one. Uh, gamer identities are valuable, they are meaningful, and gamers take them very seriously, and there's possibly hundreds of millions of hardcore gamers globally, maybe more, we can debate how many there are. Uh, that's a seriously large data set to develop something, and the risk profile in doing it there is... Yes, you might lose all your skins, and that is very upsetting to someone who invested a lot of time, and I empathize as someone who has fallen into that trap, or not trap, that joyful experience myself. But it's different than losing um, the equivalent of your social security number and your banking, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a path here, which is interesting around these personhood questions around gaming, especially Web3 gaming, um, developing some of these standards and interoperable standards across games. So I'll sort of pause there, but uh, you know, that's a little summary, I think, of the news in the last two weeks of what we've seen. I don't know how you guys feel about WorldCoin or if you've thought much about it. So from my end, what I can tell you is that identity has been pretty top of mind for me. And I guess even for us as a firm, we've, we've like, however you think about the future of the internet, I think you'll always end up in the same way of thinking as we had in our previous episode where we need to be able to distinguish real people from bots on the internet where we where, where we won't be able to see them in the flesh and so um there are dozens i think different approaches to doing identity in web3 and and in the future of the internet um Worldcoin, as you said, is doing it in a in a in a kind of decentralized way, which is, I think, you know, the way to go. And I think we all agree that, in when it comes to something as important as identity, decentralized or decentralization is better. Um, there are some other approaches that don't rely on physical um, you know, physical means, so you don't have to go somewhere. You know, don't have to get your iris scanned. Um, we have made an investment in a company called Disco that relies on more centralized authorities, but that provide like decentralized identifiers. And so it's like a, a decentralized network and you could own your government ID um, and you keep it off the chain, but you can prove that you own your government ID on chain um, using ZK technology. And so it's, um, it's like privacy preserving decentralized identifiers. Um, that's an approach. And there's a bunch of others. Um, I would say, as you mentioned, David, it is important to, um, look, it's a good, good, good place to experiment in within the gaming world. It is also an increasing problem within the gaming world. Um, you know, more and more, I would say in the web two world, cheating is, and hacking is is really annoying for competitive gamers like myself. Um, 
obviously, as you said, like hardcore gamers are a subset of all of the gamers in the world. But still, it is it is a significant problem, and it's it's not going away anytime soon. Well, it's only going to increase or get worse from here. I would say that um, coming back from ECC, so last week there was ECC in Paris, and it also seemed top of mind, quite top of mind for a lot of people there. Like just in general, decentralized identity, and our good friend, Lord and Savior Vitalik, did his whole speech or his whole talk at ECC around account abstraction which essentially um, allows us to program wallets, which gives us way more flexibility and which could, for example, um, really easily allow you to give um, a, an AI agent a budget to book you a trip. I don't know, by the way, why we're still, we're always using that trip example, but it's it's, it's kind of easy um, and a good example, yeah. but it's just funny that everyone uses that and I find myself doing the same. Um, anyway, so it seems top of mind within the ETH community, this whole identity piece. And so it's, it's timely that Worldcoin comes out with this. Um, I guess my concluding thought around Worldcoin is it feels like... <sighs> I'm, I, I haven't been as close to the evolution of, of, of standards on the internet as, as both of you, but to me, it always seems like it's sort of, as you mentioned, David, kind of organic. And also, I think it doesn't feel like such a problem that people will go out of their way to do something in the physical world. And so it feels to me like we're likely going to see a, a kind of um, hybrid approach that might combine parts of the social graph and maybe some biometric data, which, in my opinion, will more likely come from a phone which is something that billions of people already have, than an iris scan. Anyway, yeah, that was my thoughts. Devin? Yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of stuff to back here in terms of like, because it's such a, a deep topic, but the, the, the thing that comes to mind, I mean, especially even related to the world coin stuff is uh, having spent some time in cybersecurity, like pretty deep in, in the uh, red team side, you really start to think a lot about identity and what it means because identity like theft is just a huge, huge part of that in terms of like, uh, you know, security is really about often about granting access to different peoples of different identities and therefore stealing and or acting as those identities becomes your security access rather than it's not about physical keys a lot of times it's about being or acting as another person and it's really interesting when you when you start to dive into the different ways of validating identity and there's like there's the concept of like three types of of, of uh keys or passwords or or ways of validating which is something you have something you know or something you are right there's something you have is like a physical key or like a token generator or whatever it's something you physically have that can be passed between people that exists in a physical place that you may or may not have on you at a given time right something you know is like passwords or some other piece of information that's stored you know in your brain and therefore you have to know it. The something you are is like biometric kind of stuff, right? And all of these have flaws, and which is why we go towards multi-factor authentication. stuff. like something you have can physically be stolen, misplaced, lost. You don't have it with you when you need to validate yourself. All those things, right? Something you know, absolutely you could forget. You could change it too frequently. You end up relying on bad passwords because you need to remember it so often. There's all kinds of flaws with that or managing a password manager that could then be accessed. And then the sub so we go, oh, well, we've got the something you are, right? Biometrics. That's fine. But that has a lot of flaws that often don't get addressed, which is like for, for one – some biometric things could change. Like let's say you do the iris scan thing and there's some aspects of the eye that could change for some reason or another, whether it be damage to your eye, whether it be, you know, mutation, cancer. Like there's so many things that happen. Like our body's constantly regenerating itself, right? Like the person you are today is in many, many ways, very physically different from the person you were like 20 years ago, right? And even aspects of DNA could change, stuff like that, right? So that becomes its own like sort of problem. And the other aspect of that is, if someone finds a way to mimic that or replicate that, that's a password I could never change, right? Like if it's if they're if it's my DNA or my fingerprint or my iris or whatever, if they can fake that, I can't ever change that about myself in theory, unless I'm like pulling a minority report and getting you know a dude to take out my eyes and replace some kind of thing. And so that becomes its own problem. And so all these things like those are unsolved problems. Uh, in identity and like so we, we rely on these different aspects or multi-factor and stuff like that and so that becomes like a, a problem with world coins it's like you're like cool we'll validate that you're a person and we realize okay well we can't do it via something you know because that's easily copied because that's information we can't do it something via something you have because again that's also potentially replicated or whatever and like that doesn't work to prove personhood so we go to the something you are and as i just said there's like lots of problems with that but 
I think the fundamental question to start to ask with this stuff is like what we're trying to use it for. So like games example, right? So if we're trying to validate, it's a person playing a game, right? You could scan my iris, but my mouse could be controlled by a bot. You could, you could scan my hand, but my keyboard could be controlled by a bot. Like there's, there's all these aspects to what we're trying to do with personhood or identity that like need to be so well matched, I think, to the actual application that if you don't, you actually start to run into issues because there may be issues where you want to have a bot involved in something. Let's say I'm disabled in some way and I need to have some assistive software. That's been a big conflict in security and piracy control and all kinds of things where we're trying to like stop bots or stop other things. And then people with disabilities are screwed because they need that assistive technology, we start to get to the point where like, if we're relying on AI or agents, like you, the, the travel agent example that you give or whatever, like if we're relying on agents of different kinds to do things for us, like that starts to become problematic. Cause it's like, you know, you know, when I, when I do a Google search, right? Like Google's always like verifying, Hey, are you a bot? Because like I'm doing these repetitive Google searches. I mean, just, you know, jumping between searching different things. Uh, but it's like, well, technically, no, my keyboard's doing it. And then that's being translated by my operating system into my browser. And like, so there's all these in-between layers that in any one of those, a bot could be involved. That's why we have like scripting programs and so many of these things. So this feels like this kind of arms race uh, sort of mentality that we're trying to fight. And it's like, you have to get at some point go, well, okay, why am I not allowing a bot here? What, what am I really trying to achieve? And if, and if Google's like, for example, just trying to achieve, hey, we just don't want like a bazillion queries and you scraping our data. Well, then, okay, you know, challenge that part of it instead of saying like, oh, click this check mark to prove you're a human once in a while. So with the games example, again, it's like that's where we start to lean towards like uh, statistical validation, right? Like, OK, well, what we really care about not is 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 this a person or not? We care about is this performance what a person could do, right? Because that's what we're trying to match is like the performance aspect to a physical person. And like, and then you mix that up with the idea of like, it's not just about personhood, but also about unique identity. Like we're trying to prove this person and this person are the same person or they're different persons, right? So there's all these problems when you start to pull it apart that I think each particular area really needs to think about like the actual problem they're trying to solve. So if WorldCoin's trying to solve personhood, like does that just mean like, like okay, this isn't a robot, but it's like, couldn't a robot in theory have a human eye like, you know, terminated with the human skin? Like you could start to get to that point where it's like, oh, all you're proving is that it's, it has a human eye. You're not proving that it's a person. You're just proving it has a unique human eye. And like, so the, again, I just think there's, it's not like there's, these are unsolvable problems, but I think it's better to think about what the actual problem we're trying to solve is rather than this general layer of identity that I think in itself might be unsolvable. So. Okay. Can can I ahead, David? Nikki. Can I push back a little bit because I I disagree with Devin. I think saying Please. that, you know, saying that you know Worldcoin won't work because you have these and these problem is is just that's in my opinion that's a bit of a straw man argument. Oh no, I don't agree with that. I I think it, it could work absolutely. Like just to be clear, so that's not I, what I'm I, saying. I guess I guess my 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 point is that you mentioned you correctly mentioned that hey if you do an an, an iris scan and you can verify someone's identity when they log into a game they can still use use about like use cheats to you know actually um spoof the mouse movement or, or whatever you you want to you want to do right uh, fully agreed i would say that um we will need to have a a stack emerge that will be able to to you know work around fake uh, or non-human interactions um, in a in a broad way, and we're going to need a tool set because, as you say, it doesn't solve like being able to verify that a person is one one unique person doesn't solve the hacking problems in games, but it does solve the multi accounting problem in games because you know you won't be able to make multiple accounts, and then you know let's say you combine a Worldcoin type proof of unique humanhood with a anti cheat detection. The moment you ban an individual for cheating, they can't make a new account and can't continue cheating, which is what people do. You're, you no, we totally agree. Like that's what I mean. That, that's exactly my point. Is you're solving specific problems rather yeah. than a general and problem. That's exactly guess, what we need to do. And well, okay, there, there we go. But then, then we are agreed that what we're going to doing is is providing a tool in the tool stack that I think you know is is very very necessary for certain problems. Uh, I, well, let me just say because I think you guys are asking. Like there's an underlying question, to what end is this identity being forged? And I think it's a good question. Like what's the point of it? And I think the answer that comes to me is it's about accountability um, online. That at the end of the day, if you can verifiably say so-and-so did this, 
and the this can be affiliated to so-and-so, then there's a level of accountability. That's all. And like what the implications of that accountability is, well, that's a human conversation around supposedly good action, a bad action, but either way, there's some accountability. And I think that's ultimately what it's about. So if you take, say, the cheat thing, for example, in gaming, which is a huge problem, part of why cheating is so endemic, especially in more hardcore games, is because there's no accountability around the uh, the player profile. You could theoretically create a new identity on Call of Duty, go in there, and just crush it um, in the ranked matches, and be a new player. And it's kind of like, wait, where did this new player show up from? I, I guess they're really good at this game. And there's not much you can say about it. And you can maybe infer, it seems really weird, like an edge case that this new player shows up and is so good on day one, like there's no ramp in. And the answer is, yeah, they're probably using, you know, cheat software. Now, there's all this is a lot of inference. It's like very elastic. It's it's pretty murky. And by the way, the game companies tried the best they can to do use these inferences. They do actually do this kind of stuff. This would be a model algorithmically how you might flag somebody as probable cheater is that they've just showed up. They're a new player. Their trust score, in a sense, is really, really low. Now, in an environment where there's verifiable identity of some kind, and yes, you could create new pseudonymous identities on the fly. The fact that these pseudonymous identities in, are clearly brand new, like have no inference from other gaming environments they've ever been in, and they're amazingly good at the game, well, it's it's like 95%, you know, we can make up the, the percentage accuracy here, but it's incredibly likely this is not the superhuman skilled 11-year-old that just showed up magically from outer space. It's probably a bot, right? And because you have that ability to like affiliate to the, the verifiable identity, it makes it easier to make these decisions. So a lot of what happens in the non-digital world with provable identity, like kind of using your social security number, your credit score, all this stuff, which is a lot of inference, by the way. It's just trying to predict your behavior in the future. Like, are you likely or not to pay back your loan or something? This is allowing the same kind of predictive behavior to occur. Is it perfect? No. But is it like the putty or the fuel that can allow for this? Maybe the putty is a better description, you know, that you can construct something. Yeah, it makes it easier to construct something. So I think that's where the 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 provable identity helps. It helps in making it easier to val validate authenticity. It doesn't make it perfect by any means, but it makes it easier. And then that creates a kind of social pressure in a way to cooperate because um, you want people to know that you're a really skilled game player so that when you try their game for the first time, because it's a new game, and yeah, you're going to rock it to the top of that leaderboard because, hey, it's a new game. The game company is pretty confident that like, oh, this is a real person. It's the same person who is like really good at these other games that are like mine. So yay, I have a high quality new player that showed up. In fact, I'm really excited they're here. I'm not going to get into a rabbit hole around like, are they cheating? Because I know from their provable identity that they are that kind of player. And then that player clearly has an incentive to nurture and cultivate that provable identity, tend to it like a little garden, because they know that it's extremely, it's a bit of a passport that gives you access to things. It's a little bit like our LinkedIn profiles, where I think over time, I've been on it, I hate to say it, for like over 10 years, 15 years, I don't know, it's a really long time, but I've definitely tended to that thing in a way that I wouldn't really care as much for Twitter, things like Discord that I'm also on, because they don't have the same value as an identity that LinkedIn does in the context of professional work. And so we've all tended, I think I'm speculating, all three of us have kind of cultivated our LinkedIn profiles pretty carefully over time um, because they mean something to us. They're provable in a way that's important. And I feel like in a gaming context, you're going to see the same thing. Your gamer profile is, for more serious gamers, a kind of LinkedIn profile of gaming. And that will make it easier uh, with provable identity to reduce cheating and at least make it harder to get away with it just because your social graph showing up like this just seems highly correlated to a cheater. It's just an inference thing at the end of the day. Um, so I do think that's sort of the tie-in a little bit. Um, well, I think all three of us agree identity. that reputation systems, essentially, that's yes. what we're all talking about, are right. obviously like a good fit, right? Like Especially with blockchain that has like the, the immutable history. I think we touched a, a little bit on this last time. Like that's clearly a solid use case, right? Like reputation tracking in some way, because it's like our identities are not like who we are is what we do over time. And that's what an identity kind of is. It's not a physical DNA construct. It's not whatever. It's just a series of actions over time that have been tracked in some way. Yeah. And therefore that is now your identity construct. And I think you, you had mentioned, Nico, account abstraction, like in passing, um, which is a jargony term, but actually a very important concept that 
there's a reason it's ascending and kind of people's awareness. The notion of account abstraction is that you can have an identity and from there connect it to other proofs of identity, like other crypto wallets you might hold, et cetera. And that, that sort of top-level identity is that abstraction, right? It's like an abstraction layer that allows you to connect to all these others that you're, you're affiliated to, and that by doing that over time, it further validates um, your overall identity, right? Because it's like cross-referencing other things that you've connected. That is a very powerful concept, and it's a very um, blockchain-friendly concept because it allows you to kind of instantiate convenience wallets in products where they really want you to use like their wallet, and it's kind of like, oh, who needs another wallet? And the, the answer is, okay, on one level, I get it. On the other hand, if, if the onboarding is easy, it shouldn't be such a big deal. It's just like registering for a service. It's kind of created an inventory control system called a wallet on, on chain, fine. But then the ability to like affiliate all those little wallets to one identity is an incredible convenience feature for the person because now they essentially have a little management dashboard where they can be like, here's my MetaMask wallet, here's my so-and-so wallet, here's my other wallet. And they can potentially do transactions between them. Like in our case at Ready, we have built that kind of thing with the player identity as a kind of abstraction layer. And, and so that allows the players to link other wallets from other Web3 games into this kind of abstracted layer that we provide. And the idea there is, yes, it's a huge convenience feature. If you want to move assets or sell assets across games and those games use different wallets, this account abstraction makes all of it quite easier for that player. It should be gamified, it should be fun. None of this should be hard, and it isn't hard. It's actually pretty cool. It starts to feel like you're tidying up your digital life in a way that for those of us who are into tidying up, we'll appreciate. Um, but account abstraction is an important concept here, and it does relate to creating this provable identity because as you get more and more accounts affiliated to this other master account, the provability of who you are gets really sky high um, because all those sub-wallets have their own social networks potentially behind them, connections between wallets, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's all of this is opt-in, you know, by the player. And in the case of gaming, it's a very juicy opportunity because that's actually where you're seeing a proliferation of a lot of wallets is inside of Web3 games. Lots of games, lots of different wallet systems. Mm -hmm. I think um, I, I think it's it's really important, the account abstraction. Um, but what I think is equally important and which without which I think we'll never see any... Um, like decent or decentralized identity take off in any meaningful way will be privacy preservation. So using, you know, zero knowledge technology, we will be able to prove that you've spent five years inside shooter games without revealing anything else, like just yeah. that. And, and that will, I think, you know, that is one silly example of, of really important technology, like to be able to prove that you've done something without giving away some of the other details, proving that you have a degree without having to say, you know, how long it took you to get it or proving that you're a citizen of a country without giving away your name, stuff like that. I sort think. of like notaries in a way, right? Like you have this third party like validate for you and then like their reputation is, is like proving that for you. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Nico. Well, I was going to, I was just going to finish with that the technology is not yet there. Like it, that is being developed like and worked on um, quite a bit right now. Uh, but it feels like to me, my prediction would be that one, like only if that is there, will we see any like significant type of um, utilization of these decentralized yeah. identity technologies. You know, I think like if we apply a gamer lens to what you just described, Nico, um, in gaming, like you, you can do very specific things in a game, like get a certain score, beat somebody in a certain level, Etc., and then you get an achievement, right? The achievement is like a badge that encapsulates a, a recipe of things you did in the game, which makes you the blah blah superstar. And, and there's a badge, right? And you get that badge. Um, but the details of like all of the specifics of who did you defeat, like when did you defeat them, what level explicitly here and there did you get to? Well, you sort of trust that that badge encapsulates those granular details. And I think what you're talking about here is a kind of achievement ironically. like So your achievement is you've been playing shooter games for five years. The question is who issued that achievement badge, right? There's a question of authorship there. That's really interesting. That's probably the most important question. Like, how do you actually get that? But but it is an achievement. And I think that abstraction layer is the achievement layer to keep using game, gamer jargon. You know, that essentially we all have achievements 
Uh, like you achieved going to college. Congratulations. Like what college specifically? Not saying. That's just the high level badge, like college achievement unlocked. Uh, now you may opt to ultimately say, it, I also went to XYZ University and that, and that could be revealed, right? But that's on you a little bit to do. But certainly achievement unlocked, like graduated from a four-year university. You know, achievement unlocked, uh, you are a U.S. citizen to someone's point, you know. I don't know if that's an achievement, by the way. That just is what <laughs> it is, <laughs> uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in a gamer framework, it's a bit like, you know, you can have endless recipes for achievements. Um, and then you can have authorities that issue these achievements that have ways of deducing them that I guess you opt into. And I'm now brainstorming here. Like presumably the way this would actually work is as a player, you would give some more granular visibility into your on-chain graph. Like you did play all these games. It's verifiably provable on your chain. You're giving permission for this third party to do it, it's sort of like the equivalent of RSA or some security company that's whose job is to validate stuff. They go in and they basically look at your granular data and they will instantiate, emit like one of a thousand achievements they have in their portfolio of achievements. And you'd be picking, you can go achievement shopping basically for the badges you want. And then that becomes its own um, kind of thing. And then the question becomes, well, who signed it? And if the achievement authority is some well-known junk authority, whatever that means, then we can discount it as like, not only is that a junk achievement, you're the kind of person who would try to do this. Ew. Like a, it's almost like a double negative. Um, so not fooled. Uh, and then there's maybe prestige achievement authorities. And maybe, yeah, you do have to spend 20 bucks, which gets into equity questions. But yeah, you have to, there's some com compute power, some stuff that goes into it to give you that achievement. But then you do it because it's a one-time cost, like to prove that you went to graduated from college. Yeah, maybe that's like a $10 achievement. You're going to have to pay somebody 10 bucks, like that trusted signing. Why would they do it for free? That makes no sense. But then it's fine. Maybe it's worth it. After all, didn't you just borrow like a sickening amount of money to go to college in the United States? So what's another 10 bucks <laughs> to <bear? laughs> validate your four-year degree? Because it was like uh, related to degrees like that. I, I recently learned a, a little while ago about uh, like the sort of Indian like uh, diploma mill sort of like weird uh, sort of thing that they have going on where because they, they very much value like uh, degrees out there and also that becomes a lot of part of like getting visas and things like that there's this whole industry around like helping people get degrees that they don't really like deserve like the, the fake degrees in a way um that got pretty elaborate to the point where like they go in and they'll really take the real test right but they'll have like an earpiece telling them the answers and all these things so it's like yeah technically they got the achievement right they they took the test they validated they proved it technically in a way, they actually did get the achievement, right? But then it's like that – they start to come up with all these sketchy ways because you have like that achievement itself is now the value. And so like the ways of getting the achievement start to find these weird workarounds or hacks or like – and then what's funny is I guess because like that achievement itself is what's valuable, they start holding that over their head where like if – they charge huge amounts of monies for this. And if the, uh, you know, the, the recipient of this who's on like a visa doesn't start like paying the sort of blackmail extortion money later, they'll threaten to reveal it. So they like get their visa pulled and like, because now they've like established themselves in another country. It's this whole weird like industry that gets to it. But it, my point being like the, the, like the trust, the stuff that you guys brought up is like a super essential to this, right? Like the trust authorities that are signing these, we have that with certificates right now or already yeah, on the internet, exactly. right? Like signing SSL certs and like, all this stuff, it's it's interesting, like, because at the end of the day, no matter what we do, like, there's always this trust system that we have to deal with. Like, you know, we're you guys are talking about decentralizing stuff, right? And it's like, there's this idea of uh, one of the things that's valuable about centralization is sort of like fixing issues, right? If you have a problem with something, like, even like when you make a transaction and getting a refund, like, we count on banks or other centralized authorities to, like, handle that refund process because, like, you could code a certain amount of things into code. But if the code turns out to be incorrect in some way or exploitable, there's no other person to fix that for you, right? And so we start to go, okay, well, we don't want a centralized authority fixing that. What we'll do is we'll sort of empower certain individuals and they have to all agree and then we'll create these like pseudo-democracies. And it's like no matter like how we try and take people out of it, we end up bringing people back into an extent and having to like sort of hand out pieces of trust or different trust systems or networks. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we like try and design those better and better in different ways, but we ultimately like, we could make only a certain level of decentralization manageable without either making it like so uh, un, like uh, fixable when there's a problem or just like hope we can make enough, you know, trustworthy people to be able to sort out issues. And it's, I think it's an interesting problem because like you yeah. start to kind of explore that space in between the code is law and the, the law is law kind of thing, and hopefully you can find a middle ground between the two. 
I mean, do you think I, in the end? Yeah, go ahead. Can Nico, I just sorry. like jump in here because you know, Devin, you lay out um, correctly that there's a bunch of problems with this approach and and overly decentralized decentralizing things is probably not going to be the way to go, at least not in the near future. But David, when you were before um, illustrating a lot of the examples about identity for gamer for gamers, I think you perfectly made the point, and I'd like to point our listeners to this that. You know, gaming is a perfect playground for this. And so all of the edge cases that, Devin, you mentioned that could potentially arise feels like, obviously, we won't be able to, to fix them all, but I think we'll get, you know, the 80-20 rule. You know, we'll get 80% of the way there using these just games as an example. And and, and um, I think that's going to, you know, bring us a long way forward. Absolutely. I hope yeah. so. Because, you know, all of these solutions, I, I, look, I think of them as mosaics, where uh, ultimately it's these pieces that come together to come to ultimately formulate uh, an inference around the trust and the authority on the identity. Some of those pieces will come from very centralized authorities. Like, it's possible that, yeah, like, WorldCoin will be running, there'll be orbs, and you'll have some signature coming out of WorldCoin that is based on your iris, and that's a very, like different kind of level of thing. But that's just one chip in your overall matrix. The other chip might be your social graph on things like LinkedIn and Twitter that you found a way to, or I should say X, that you found a way to connect to. Um, and, 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 and it's not like one is better than the other, but maybe they're better together is a way to think about it. Uh, that yes. more is better, essentially. And gaming is this really great environment where you can simulate that mosaic, right? Because different publishers will have different types of gamer identity. Um, then there's a whole sort of secondary world of things like Twitch streams and Discord where the same identity might be contributing on Twitch. Like they may be streaming or they may be like a heavy contributor on Discord. When you figure out a way to connect that to the mosaic, it gets even juicier because now there's this other level of credibility. It means it's so meaningful that there's that person has this sort of history there. It gives you more confidence in the, in the trust, essentially. Um, it's harder to fake that stuff over time, right? There's just such, there's just a longevity to engaging on Twitch or engaging on Discord. Um, if you've been on it for three or four years, it's just what it is, is that you have been. And that's mm, really interesting. Probably a human yeah. being. Um, let, me, let me give you an interesting example around games, like specifically with like problems with centralization. Like, cause the flip yeah. side of what I was saying about solving problems with centralization also has like the, the opposite where, you know, the, the adversaries or what, or the thieves or whatever can use that sort of like help from centralization against you. So like, uh, this happens a lot with, uh, with Ubisoft and, um, like my experience in the Rainbow Six Siege world uh, being a commentator for a while, uh, and I also experienced this personally recently, is account theft uh, becomes a big thing because you can have two-factor, you can have all email addresses, you can have all these things, but at the end of the day, chat support ends up being like your biggest enemy because I've seen so many pros have their accounts stolen by chat support, essentially, because what happens is you need someone to be helpful, right, to to help handle these problems that the the sort of code is law area can't help with right you need people to help with it but and those people are doing technically the right thing and trusting and they're being trustworthy right ubisoft's not actually technically being the bad guy here but when they go to help you out they might actually be helping out the criminal so they had some these interesting ways to try and validate that you were the right person right so they would go like okay well like show me the steam receipt of you buying the game or like Mm -hmm. this particular old game that i see on your record that you had bought show me like the receipt proving it. And it's like, well, on one hand, you might not have that receipt, right? You might not be able to prove that. And then are you locked out? Do they have to give you another option? Uh, things like that. Or we, they had the case of like uh, a lot of these thieves forging these, these receipts. And then now it looks like they're actually more legit potentially than you, because if they have that receipt and you actually don't, they can, they can quote unquote prove it and you can't. So I, I, I've seen this happen quite a bit, and I even had my account stolen recently because I had charms and stuff like that that were like somewhat exclusive from like having been part of events, and that made my account valuable. And so they they, they contacted chat support, got them like tricked them into, into giving them my account. Basically, I caught it pretty fast, managed to like uh, start to kind of reverse the process to try and contact them again. And luckily, just because of my like notoriety and people knowing who I was, they actually contacted me uh, and and like we sorted it out and they ended up giving me my account back as like a happy ending. But that's not the normal way it gets sorted out. They almost have to like, a lot of these pro players will have to go to higher and higher authorities to like somewhere at Ubisoft be and use their status to try and get their account back. And it's like lesser known people, people that aren't like pro players or stuff like that just generally aren't going to get their account back half the time. And it's, it's interesting because it's like, we, we do need sometimes that, that sort of like 
arbiter to sort of sort things out for us, but that cuts both ways. And I think it's kind of interesting. Like, and you see, have you ever seen like trying to sort out identity theft, at least in America, can be this huge, huge mess where sometimes the thief can prove better than you can that they're you. And you end up with this just quagmire for like a decade of trying to prove that you're the, the that person. If you like say don't have a birth certificate or something, which is like the receipt of your birth, basically. Mm-hmm. What I think you get into uh, if you think about account abstraction, like there's this top level sort of master identity or uh, primary identity. And if one gets access to that, you're like, okay, that seems to have horrific cascading consequences, like getting control of your social security number in the, in that context. But in the world we're talking about, where there's like subsidiary identities affiliated to the primary identity, a, a breach into a subsidiary identity may be more fixable in that context because it's clear that the parent of that identity is meant to be this immutable higher level thing. And if that thing is still secure, then maybe repairing the subsidiary identity, like your gamer identity where you had your charms or your gems as a subsidiary, a child to some parent, maybe actually makes this recovery easier, right? Well, that's as we how establish we're using these norms. In a lot of these situations, right? Where a lot of the right. times that email, your email is that sort of parent identity in a lot of these systems. Like that's your password True. recovery, whatever. So like, I mean, it's a terrible one, right? But that's the one we've kind of like, stumbled into over time it's not as it's terrible as you think because you know when you put that in with two-factor authentication and some other techniques it's not so bad you know i mean that's why we keep using it probably it's not perfect to your point devin but it's not the worst it could be you know mm-hmm. right right exactly and, but uh yeah, yeah it's a good to, example. to to get back to david's point that you made before um before devin's anecdotes i think the interesting thing is here is that the more identity solutions we have it's like having a password where you can add more characters and the longer it gets, it actually exponentially gets safer. And so yes. if you have um, multi-factor authentication with you know, 10 different providers, as annoying and unusable it becomes, you're kind of pretty safe. And so you know, there's always going to be this trade-off between convenience and privacy or safety or security in this case. Um, but if we can combine... like, If we can find an easy way to have people use you know, multiple types of identification on on the internet um you know know, there's this critical mass where it becomes very very hard to to beat that here's another it just just came to me as an as a thought like in this world you could essentially appoint like five key validators that are humans you know that are like you're basically your could be like your parents your close friends basically Right, so I've identified these five people canonically who also have reputation. They're on online, etc. They have on-chain identities, and if someone were to steal like my primary identity, I could pick up the phone, call my five people like very quickly, or do a group chat to all of them, or whatever it is, and be like, "Guys, just send up the flare saying this: my primary account's been compromised." All five of them have to pull the lever. They do, and then whoever seized your account, the whole thing goes on ice pending review, and they can no mm-hmm. longer just do any transactions. It's just yeah, Facebook did exactly that solution. Switch. They, they did, did that when you would assign friends as like uh, as like validators for you, and then yeah. like if you lost access to your account, you could actually have a friend help you regain it. And so like that's actually at least it works, been experimented right? with mm-hmm. in the wild. I think I haven't used it personally, but it seemed to work. It's, it seems like a pretty juicy way of solving this aspect of a takeover. It's, you know, it's actually being done for for cryptocurrency wallets, social recovery, where it's awesome. um it's a multi key or multi private um seed and and like it's it's actually how a bunch of smart contracts wallets are also being done with three different keys where you you own like one is through a password one is through your device and the third one is is right. is owned by you know the company that makes the game for example um and so you know this this is being done you know for for social recovery as well I like how there's no original idea. Whatever you can think of, not only has it already been thought of, but someone's built a company to do it. <laughs> it's yeah. and, and like, you're so this behind. Is my, this is what we were saying in the last episode as well. It's like you know, the, the more we try to do new stuff in Web three, the more these things have actually already been done or tried twenty years ago in the, the emergence of the internet. Um, yeah. Ironically enough, I have, I have one last point that I think is is kind of relevant in this discussion, and it's um, it's. It's an emerging business model or an emerging way of, of interacting with consumers that makes this increasingly important, this discussion. Um, and it is actually the use of airdrops. 
So the use of airdrops is essentially, you know, when you make a decentralized network that's governed by a token, you can reward people that participate in your network by dropping them, dropping them tokens. If you spend some time on Twitter, like me, um, you will see the term airdrop farming or yield, no, not yield farming, that's a different thing, but like airdrop hunting. Um, and it is, it's essentially people that, um, that speculate on networks that haven't issued tokens yet and that believe that if they take certain actions within that network, and this usually happens with new L1s or L2s, if you make an account, if you do a transaction, if you buy an NFT, if you do, you know, if you vote on a govern governance proposal, um, you receive at a later date ret retroactively um, tokens for that. And so, you know, there's a lot of like, <laughs> I know one person who has employed a uh, a few dozen people in lower income uh, countries that do all of these actions for them. Um, and equally, we I know of another company that wants to airdrop tokens um, and is, is, is facing this problem, which is this airdrop farming. And so, um, yeah, this this problem is is solved by this whole discussion. And it's interesting that a business model that gets created by Web3 is now also um, given an extra incentive to to solve this identity problem. Feels like this proactive reputation farming, like this idea that um, if reputation becomes key to identity, right? Like this, that people create. Because I always, I always speculate this idea that like if if reputation is important or like your actions, right? Like on the blockchain, wherever they're tracked, that your actions have some importance. That people start to create new identities and purposely try and like seed them with whatever reputation needs to be done, right? Like, because you guys were talking about like time as a cost, right? To these reputations, right? Where like, oh, it takes time to build up an identity and that's really the cost. Similar to like the disincentive to what, uh, like creating fraud on uh, blockchain networks, right? Like it's just so prohibitively time or cost expensive that like generally it doesn't make sense to, to commit, commit this fraud. And like if we can have a if there's enough like divergent identities that people spend time cultivating or building up like like you, you know the linkedin example if i if i take the time to create a brand new fake identity right with like you know fake stuff and then spend time over time to build up that identity on linkedin or whatever build up a reputation build up a network and then now that has like a new value as a brand new identity stuff like that reminds me of that like with the airdrop farming but it's like almost like this karma system or like this uh, reputation farming where you're like, let me go do these deeds that might be considered rewarding in the future and like farm that karma and hope that someday like that, that karma is rewarded. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just kind of a funny concept that uh, I, you know, I don't think is like technically new, but it's like the technological level added to it with like blockchain tracking and other reputation tracking makes it kind of interesting with that, those things sort of being like, relatively immutable like what do you do if you find out those people were doing that like you can't go take away their actions on these immutable historical things you just have to decide like how do i separate like those the people committing the good deeds for the right reason to the people committing the good deeds for the wrong reason isn't this also a function of badly designed airdrops nico because at the end of the day like if the thing you I think of the airdrop as a kind of a coupon or like a reward ticket that has future value as an early adopter, right? But if it's not transferable, meaning in the smart contract you just can't transfer it to another wallet, then it has no resale value unless you have to use it yourself. So then it's like, hmm, maybe I'm just speculating here, but to the degree to which these things are transferable undermines their purpose because it rewards this type of farming because that's the residual value, I assume, is that they because this project is successful, the, the lucky people with these airdrop NFTs get a benefit. But if you can't transfer it at all, all people you sell can do the is use it as a... Yeah, what? Well, people, sell the people wallet. People sell the wallet, just like selling the account in a game, right? Yeah, and, and then that gets into another question about uh, how you design your wallets and like, yeah, the tra that whole piece. It's tricky. It's, I think it is tricky. So, David, yeah. just so I understand your point, you're saying that... Um, if you just made the tokens non-transferable, you solve the problem of of that airdrop farming. Well, I think I think Devin brought up the point that if you create a new wallet just for the purpose of these airdrops and don't put anything else in it, and then I guess sell that wallet, you've hacked around what I just said, um, which then raises the interesting question about uh, you know should the wallet have been around for a while? Are there other things in that wallet that yep. don't come from you? Is it a completely empty wallet? There's almost like wallet qualification. Where the switching cost of, yeah. of moving that wallet is high. Um, 
you know, the problem with all this is these people who do these airdrops, they just like the headline number of all the participants. It actually works for them on a marketing level. So there's a bit of cynicism here. They're, they're not actually neutral. They kind of want a lot of headline numbers. So they don't want to create friction to get the mm-hmm. NFT. But to your point, Nico, like, what's the quality of those people? The answer is it could be really, really low. So then it's like, well, are there quality checks here? You know, it, it, does it benefit that entity to only airdrop into wallets that have been around for a certain amount of time, more than X months, that have other things in them, that have shown at least $10 worth of transactions in and out of them. Of course, once you do that, you dramatically reduce your funnel on the top of conversion. And so some of this, it's kind of like, you know, what are you guys really up to here? Like, you know these trade-offs. You tell me. Like, do you really believe in your product? Is it super awesome? Or is this basically something not so awesome? You're just doing a momentum play. Well, then there's a lot of signals for other third parties like investors to maybe look at those and, and, and then question, <laughs> you know, those airdrops are really junky. Like, I'm not impressed with your, the fact there's half a million people who claimed it because mm-hmm. the way those things were, were done, I can kind of look at that. That gets to analytics on chain. If you could then scan all the people who got those NFTs and then identify the relative age of those wallets how new are they? You could probably very quickly figure out how much of them were scammy. And maybe as an outside investor, I'm now speaking like for Bitcraft, you might be like, huh, there's some really negative signaling here. We did the analytics um, using our other portfolio company, by the way, which is amazing at doing on-chain real-time analytics around smart contracts, which I'm sure you invested in an amazing company that does that. It's and then a, you would use to that. To me, it sounds like it's just like credit scores. <laughs> Like, right, yeah. where, we, where we're talking about, like, credit scores, like, we're like, oh, hey, your credit's too new, so your score is, like, doesn't count now. Your credit needs to be a certain age. You need to make certain yep. types of transactions. And so yep. it's like credit score has been iterating on these designs for quite a while for basically exactly. a numerical reputation system. Not that that so, isn't without right. tons of flaws, but, like, it's, it's an interesting example that's been, like, yeah. publicly done for a while. So then you can do a bell curve on the, uh, on the airdrop and, like, what – how much of yeah, what's the median on that curve in terms of quality? And if the answer is it's not so great, well, you know, congratulations, your NFT. How many, how many bots are you willing really to work. accept in there? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's funny how Devin, the point you made of pre pre um seeding your reputation, your online reputation, is actually very similar to oh, you should I know you don't need it, but you should take a loan to start start increasing that credit yeah. score. It's a very American thing. Like I, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, it's it's what I've seen. Right, I, I have no idea. Buy yeah. something over the weekend on a card I like never use, and I'm like, well, I probably better use it because that's the only way I'm going to build credit on this card. Even though I don't need to build the credit, I'm like, I have this card sitting around. I need to make this transaction that's right about the right amount. I don't need to use this card, but uh, you know, might as well because it adds to my reputation score. Which okay. is like again, that's not a good signal, but like I'm following their rules, so yeah, which is. This is actually like, I guess, like another huge tangent on how this could be used wrong, right? We mentioned that if this becomes like credit score and we start disallowing people uh, certain activities or, or, you know, certain wallets, I don't know how how that will work. And I guess, again, there, it it brings us back to gaming being maybe a very low level. Right. This is all game design, behavioral design. Like this is what game designers do is exactly this kind of stuff. It just also allows for a uh, a sandbox for for us to test these things. And and is it it fair to, if someone, you know, has a completely fresh account, never played a game, wants to play a game and suddenly is doing very well, is that immediately flagged as a cheater or a smurf or how, how do we handle these things? And is it fair to maybe force them to play against other people in the same category and, and, and these types of, of things. Yeah. Good. Felt like um, we went in a, in a bunch of deep things here. Um, I enjoy these conversations. These are fun. Good. Um, Devin, David, any, any final remarks before we end this? Just it's awesome to be working in gaming right now with all these fascinating questions being so right in our faces and able to do something about it. So it's a really I, fertile moment. I agree. And to just know that there's so many people in this space who have dismissed a complete technology stack because some people sold some some JPEGs on the internet and now everything that you know, has Web3 is bad is just very ironic and in a way also kind of frustrating. No, it's a great signal, Nico, because the one thing we know is all the lemmings are wrong. And, and we've go. seen this for 30 years in technology. Like the day people start following the lemmings, they're just going to get their hats handed to them. So 
<laughs> I'm happy not to be with the lemmings heading for, for some cliff. reason. No one seems to get the hype cycle. They haven't figured out how that works yet. They, they always just see the first part and they go, there's not going to be a second part. Trust me. That's dead. You know, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. The short sightedness of, of people generally is, uh, is amazing. It's astounding. Mm-hmm. But uh, I do think uh, this identity stuff is such a, such an interesting deep topic because it can go all the way to the spiritual, like metaphysical, whatever level or straight down to the technological individual problem solving level. And it's such a spectrum of things to explore, but it's like in a way, like it is fundamental to like humanity and, and uh, what we consider ourselves. And, and there's so many like, different angles on it and that's why we can go in so many different directions in this topic but i think exploring it through games as you said nico is like is such a fun way to like go about that whether it be like through a werewolf kind of thing like among us or be just exploring what it means to allow alts in an mmo and like there's there's so many topics here that games at least touch upon in a way that that as you guys pointed out is playful in a, enough that we we don't have to like take it so seriously that we can't at least explore solutions without being super scared because it's not government policy. Hundred percent. Good, awesome. Um, to be continued, I'd say. I think there's going to be some more news around this where we can uh, do something around, and um, maybe we can also get someone that speaks with a lot of authority that's actually building within this space, this specific space, to uh, to opine as well and see what they're working on. Good. Thank you, Nico. David, thanks as usual for joining. This was great. And um, listener, thank you too. Hope you enjoyed. And let's catch each other in the next episode. Ciao. Ciao. Bye. (laughs) 